Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome back to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Miranda Corcoran, and I will be your host today. In this episode, we're going to be speaking with Christopher G. White, whose exciting book, Other Worlds, Spirituality and the Search for Invisible Dimensions, was published this year by Harvard University Press. So welcome to the show, Christopher, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Miranda, for having me. It's a pleasure. So it's great to have you here. Your book is, I think, a really exciting project. It really undermines that sort of divisive um, view that people have of the relationship between science and spirituality. It really reconfigures that whole discourse. So it's a really fascinating work. So I just wanted to jump in by, I suppose, asking you about the project as a whole. And you start off by noting how... In the course of researching an earlier book, you were struck by the ways in which many contemporary theologians, religious leaders, and the faithful in general often borrow ideas and metaphors from the natural sciences in order to articulate their own thoughts on miracles or the afterlife or the survival of the soul. But one interesting point, I suppose, is that this isn't just a modern or a new age phenomenon. Science and the supernatural have been intersecting in various fascinating ways throughout human history, from mesmerism during the Enlightenment right up to Victorian psychical researchers. So there's always been this very interesting relationship between the scientific and the spiritual. Could you tell us a bit more about why the scientific and the spiritual are perhaps not as opposed as we might initially assume? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, I think you're right. I think that what we call science and what we call religion have been intertwined for a a long time, even going back long before the the Enlightenment. Um, I think I think we think today that science and religion are are in conflict because of the work of really 19th century scientists who are professionalizing, who are building their disciplines. you know, and some of them, actually, I look at in my first book, you mentioned my first book, which is Unsettled Minds. It's sort of a look at a cultural history of sciences of mind and brain. And in, and in social sciences in general, but in psych, psychological sciences in particular, you have, um, you have early psychologists really building their discipline by excluding speculative, theological, and even philosophical questions. Um, so I think that they're, they're uh, you know, the those people are some of the main people who generate this narrative that science and religion um, are in conflict and have always been in conflict. And in fact, some of those same people wrote, wrote narratives in the late 19th century about the, the quote, conflict between science and religion. And they wrote these grand narratives about, <laughs> about the history of science and religion. Um, and they were all about, uh, they were all about conflict um, between uh, between the church, between the, the Catholic Church, um, and the the rise of modern science, and and really there were there were narratives of scientific triumph over religion um, as well, right? And I think we still have that narrative in 
pop culture today. I mean, we, we certainly have that narrative. We have many, um, we have many scientists and many spokespeople for science who get up there and say, what we really need to do is we need to get rid of religion um, because it's opposed to kind of modern thought. And yeah, and in my first book and in this book, in other worlds, I do try to like a lot of, like many other people, right. I do try to say, wait a minute, that's not actually how things have worked. Um, you know, that narrative of science against religion is a narrative certainly promoted by many science spokespeople and, and also promoted on the other side by Christian fundamentalists. But most people exist in a middle space uh, with their different ways of thinking and imagining the world. And I think that it's in that middle space that there's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more to talk about. There's a lot of interesting stories there. And in my book, Other Worlds, exists in that sort of middle space where I try to talk about scientific thinking and religious thinking, um, all as um, all as related um, and all as imaginative. Um, and the imagination is an important word that bridges, I think, science and religion in this book. Um, it's a book about the idea that the universe has invisible spaces or layers or dimensions to it. Um, and that's something that scientists and mathematicians imagine in certain ways. And it's something that religious people imagine too. Um, so, so the concept uh, that, that there are these invisible spaces or dimension is a concept that becomes important in 19th century mathematics and in physics. And then some of those mathematicians themselves who have what we say spiritual inclinations or religious interests or religious questions, they start to speculate um, um, about the, the real existence of these higher dimensional spaces. And then other people do as well, right? There's many people, my book is about all the different kinds of people who say, wow, this is a really interesting idea. Could there be borderland spaces that exist beyond the senses? Um, and does this new mathematics point to them? Um, you know, if that's true, what does it say about um, where departed spirits go, right? <laughs> or what does that say about what I think about heaven? Or what does that say about what I think about my Christianity or my Judaism? Um, all of those questions are a part of part of the book. That's really great. So your book, I suppose, focuses in particular on one very specific idea, and that's an idea derived from physics primarily, the idea that the universe has these higher invisible dimensions that you were speaking about. So where does this idea come from and how does it lend itself to religious or spiritual discourse? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's in the 19th century, it emerges as an important idea that mathematicians use and physicists use in order to make the mathematics of the universe more simple and elegant. So uh, mathematicians start to assume that, you know, that, there's a fourth spatial dimension because it seems to make um, their way of, uh, of thinking about the universe and all of its forces, electromagnetism and gravity. It seems to maybe bring them together um, and the mathematics of it looks more elegant. So these were ideas that were used in the 19th century. Um, you know, they, they still are used today, right? The, this is still, I guess I would say the basic strategy that, uh, string theorists and cosmologists use today. These are these are really math, mathematically mathematically oriented physicists um, used today in order to try to do something that still hasn't actually been done, 
right, which is come up with one set of simple, elegant equations for the universe. We still don't have um, one set, right? I mentioned in my book, we have two sets. <laughs> we have a set of, uh, we have a way of thinking that a set of equations that governs the world of the very small, the quantum world. And then we have a separate set of equations for the world of the very large um, on more cosmological scales and for gravity. We don't actually have a theory or a mathematics that brings those two theories together. We know that both of them work. We know that quantum mechanics works. Um, it's been shown to be true, um, and it's been shown to work many times over. We also know that Einstein's theory of gravity is true. The problem is that those two theories don't fit together. And one way that people are trying to fit them together is by positing the existence of other higher invisible dimensions, other spaces beyond our three spatial dimensions, and even other time dimensions, which is even more confusing than trying to talk about trying to talk about what what it might mean to talk about what is an invisible space, right? And how could there be something um, above our three familiar spaces, right? So we have our world apparently has three three spaces. We we have length, we have width, and we have height. Well, could there be another space? <laughs> you know, could there be a space beyond that? Could there be a fourth space, a fifth space, a sixth space, um, and so on? So these ideas, getting back to your question, these ideas become important in the 19th century. Mathematicians and physicists use them. Incidentally, they become important for Einstein, too, and we can talk about Einstein a little bit later um, if you want. So um, they become intriguing to people. Some mathematicians and physicists even say, wow, like I said, wow, this could be, you know, maybe this suggests the existence of real other spaces. And in fact, um, one astrophysicist, German astrophysicist with the last name of Zollner, uh, Karl Zollner, working at Leipzig, uh, became very interested in this. And he wrote this book in 1880 called Transcendental Physics. <laughs> okay. So this is not just a physics of, of the natural world, but it's a physics that points beyond. And he, he was a true believer in this idea that, you know, the mathematics of higher dimensions points to a real, uh, a real higher dimensional space. And he actually brings in this American spiritualist medium named Hem Henry Slade. And he does a series of seances. It's, they're quite, it's a quite remarkable story, actually, that I unfortunately don't talk about too much in the book. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. But he brings in a number of prominent scientists, um, including this guy, Wilhelm Wundt, who's uh, one of the founders of modern experimental psychology. And they all sit with them <laughs> around this table and uh, with Henry Slade, and they do seances. Um, and Zollner's idea is that you know, if if Slade or other people who have a kind of spiritual or metaphysical proficiency to if they could somehow work through and within higher dimensions, they could do miraculous things. Right. And Slade actually has some success um, convincing Zollner that he's doing it, that he's actually moving th things through a higher space. Um uh, other other folks sitting around the table were less persuaded. Uh, I mentioned Wundt, but there were others who uh, who wrote about this later. Uh, they were less persuaded, and there actually develops a whole in the early 1880s a whole controversy about what Zollner's doing. And and most scientists are sort of disgusted by <laughs> you know what they what they believe is his sort of perversion of science. Um, you know, science should not be about invisible things. Um, science should not be about unseen things. Science should not be about non-empirical things um, like spirits or ghosts. 
And here was Zollner, um, <clears throat> excuse me, here was Zollner, <clears throat> excuse me, trying to talk about a, a science of, of the invisible. So, uh, and this fits back to what I said earlier about the ways scientists were professionalizing their disciplines, um, <clears throat> you know, and disciplining their disciplines, right, in these, um, in these decades, right, in the late 19th century, really, you know, quite deliberately excluding things that were unempirical. You know, you definitely see this in the history of sciences of mind and brain, and, but you see it in the history of many sciences. So, so what Zollner was doing was really transgressive. And it wasn't just Zollner who sort of saw spiritual possibilities um, in a mathematics or a geometry of higher dimensions. It was others as well. But, um, you know, what you see in my book is you see, you see scientists, if they're interested in this kind of stuff, sort of secretly talking about it. Um, you know, they're not, they're not talking about it at scientific conferences. They're sometimes not talking about it to their scientific colleagues, but they might be writing narratives about it. They might be writing letters about um, their sort of spiritual or religious questions and how the idea of higher dimensions could help them answer those questions. Um, you know, some of them, like the main character in Chapter 2, Charles Howard Hinton, some of them don't quite fit in academia. Some of them don't quite fit in academic uh, mathematics or academic physics um, because Hinton becomes a kind of an enthusiast for seeing or somehow perceiving or maybe we should say imagining a higher dimension. And he develops a whole pedagogy of seeing higher dimensions and he ends up getting pushed out of academia. So he he starts as a as an academic in the UK and then comes to Princeton as an assistant professor and actually does a lot of other things that academics um, hoping for tenure shouldn't do, like like coaching the base, coaching the baseball team at Princeton and and, and inventing a, an automatic pitching gun that the the Princeton baseball team used. Actually, I think I think it was the first um, the first um, you know automated pitching gun um, in the world. His, his, initial, his initial gun was actually a cannon, um, which you can imagine, you know, standing up at the plate waiting for the ball to come at you. He, he, it was a cannon that actually had a charge and blew, and blew a baseball at the batter. So uh, I think it was a little bit scary, but, but he did a lot of things he shouldn't have been doing if he was trying to get tenure um, at tenure. And so he had to move on to, to another place. And then he finally ended up just being a writer. Um, and like I said, sort of not fitting as an academic Again, because the way he wanted to talk about higher dimensions was sort of as, I don't know, what would we say? It's sort of imaginative and I think, and I think even spiritual. Um, um, yeah, I think, I think in my book I try to be careful about how I talk about his spiritual yearning because he talks a lot about higher dimensions um, in a materialistic way and in a secular way. And yet he also says things like, I feel emotionally released, or I feel imaginatively released by pondering higher dimensions. And to me, that to me that says something different, you know, as as someone who's trying to interpret what he's doing. To me, higher dimensions was a kind of a spiritual pursuit for him that really did kind of unlock a whole new way of being in the world and being comfortable in the world. And I make that point in that chapter too, um, uh, that chapter about Hinton, chapter two. I think this whole idea of um, higher dimensions is a really fascinating idea. But throughout the book, you don't just talk about the history of the idea. You also look at how various writers and artists and creative individuals generally 
engaged with this idea of higher dimensions. And your book begins with a close reading of Edwin Abbott's hugely influential 1884 novel, Flatland, a book which actually attempts to apply mathematical and geometrical ideas to the supernatural. So how does Abbott achieve this? And why is his novel so important to our understanding of the relationship between the spiritual and the scientific in the 19th century? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you're right. Edwin Abbott's uh, classic book is is really central to, to my book. It's it's uh, the first chapter that I start out with, and he he's wrestling with all these issues we've already talked about. You know, he's <laughs> he, he's he's very well read. He's reading in in math. He's reading in I guess what we could call popular science of his day. He knows about higher dimensions. He's a teacher and a and a principal headmaster at a private uh, at the City of London School. So he's he's really well read. He's also an Anglican priest, so he also has a kind of a spiritual or religious interest and set of questions. And I think he's you know he's like a lot of people in my book. He's a religious or spiritual person living in a time of science, um, you know. And I think that he, like many others, are caught in this moment when you have the emergence of agnosticism. And you have the emergence of agnosticism, even as a word, right? Even as a category. Um, and you have the powerful, you know, you have a powerful set of people who are talking about um, Darwinian evolution and scientific naturalism um, and so on. And so, so Abbott is wrestling with all of those things. And he, he then encounters this idea that there might be a, a fourth, uh, a fourth dimension, a fourth spatial dimension, and he uses this, I think, in imaginative ways to think about the possibilities that there might be other sorts of invisible spaces to reality, um, even sort of heavenly sorts of spaces, spiritual kinds of spaces. So, so yeah, he writes this book, Flatland, which many of us know. I actually read it for the first time years ago as a senior in high school in, in calculus, right? I think many many math students still read this wonderful book. It's really kind of an enchanting story. Um, about higher dimensions. It takes place actually in a lower dimensional world. And maybe for anyone who's listening who is unfamiliar with the story, I can just say a word about the story. But it takes place in a two-dimensional flat world, right? The story is called Flatland. So in this two-dimensional flat world, it's a world with only length and width, but no height or depth, all right? So all of the characters in this story slide around on the surface of this flat world, like um, their squares and their circles and their triangles. And uh, they would be, they would be sliding around just like on the surface of a table, right? They just exist in this flat world, in this flat two dimensional world. At, at a certain point in the narrative, um, there's a lot to the story, actually um, Victorian social critique and, um, and so on. There's, there's gender there. There's all kinds of interesting stuff in there, actually. But at a critical moment in the story, the, the main character, who is a square, um, encounters a being from a higher dimension. This is a, a three-dimensional sphere, right, or a globe. And this th three-dimensional sphere comes down and inserts itself into the flat plane of flatland. All right, and so when a three-dimensional sphere come to, comes down and intersects with a flat plane, um, the square is is sitting there or, or uh, sliding there in his flat world, and he he sees something appear, okay, on the horizon, right? What does he see? Well, he doesn't see a sphere because he 
only is two-dimensional. He sees a cross-section of a sphere, right? He sees uh, a line appear. Actually, the sphere, as it comes into his flat world, first appears as a point on his flat horizon, and then it appears as a line that sort of expands in length, right? As the sphere comes down into the plane of flatland. And the square doesn't know what this is. He's puzzled. He's confused. The sphere actually makes things worse by starting to talk to him, right? A voice, <laughs> a disembodied voice coming from nowhere or from a somewhere that, that the square doesn't understand. So to make a long story short, the sphere says, you know what? You live in a flat world. Um, you, have, you have left and right and forward and back in your world. Those are your two directions. But there's actually another direction that you can't perceive. This is what the sphere says. The square can't believe it, thinks it's, uh, thinks it's got to be a lie. And the sphere um, resorts to an extreme possibility, and he peels, he, he, he peels the square off of his flat world. Um, and he, he, he pulls the square off of his flat two-dimensional world and up into three-dimensional space. And at th this point in the novel, the, the square is amazed, right? Because he can, he can look down. Now he's uh, in a three-dimensional space that has length and width and height. And he can look down on the flat plane of flatland, his world, right? Or what he used to think was his world. Um, and he can see the whole thing laid out in front of him. Um, and so the story continues. Um, the square is amazed by this. He returns to all of the other flatlanders. He can't believe it. He tells them about it. Uh, it turns out that this kind of knowledge is forbidden by the priestly circles, by the priestly class in his society. Um, and he's, he's shunned as well because um, Victorian Britain is conventional and, <laughs> you know, they, they don't want to think about they don't want to think about things that um, that are not a part of the already existing social order. So he's sort of shunned and he ends up dying in a jail um, at the end of the narrative. All right. Um, but Abbott is using the story in very particular ways. And when you read the story, you can uh, it's not hard to discover what what Abbott's purpose is, because he says in the narrative, right, he says, uh, you know, I, the square, wrote this narrative for Spacelanders who live in three dimensional space in order that they might think, well, you know what? Maybe there's a higher space above their reality, right? So he says that I'm, I've created this book in order for people who live in space, three-dimensional space, so they might be able to think about or imagine or just entertain the possibility that a higher space might exist um, above them. What would it be like? In other words, right? We might play this out for a second. What would it be like if a higher dimensional visitor came and visited us? right? And appeared suddenly in some strange shape, um, like it did for the square, appeared sub suddenly in, um, with some sort of strange, unrecognizable shape, appeared in the center of a room and started talking to us and so on. So Abbott wanted to use this idea of higher spatial dimensions and a visitor from a higher space to say that, um, you know, maybe it's possible that there are other sorts of higher spaces above us um, in our familiar world of three spatial dimensions. And he doesn't, he doesn't actually say, um, in the book, he does say those types of things um, that I just said. He doesn't go a step further in the book, okay? And he doesn't say, well, that must be where God lives, uh, all right? Or that, that must be where Jesus is from. Or uh, he doesn't say things in the book like, well, this is an explanation for Christ's incarnation, all right? But I actually think, and I make the argument in chapter one of the book, 
that these are the kinds of puzzles that that Abbott is trying to solve, right? And he's actually trying to solve them by using mathematical concepts and scientific concepts. So, in other words, why is the incarnation so puzzling, right? This is this is after all getting something that is a higher dimensional reality into our lower dimensional or uh, our lower dimensional world. What happens? Well, we only see fragments. We only see glimpses. We only see cross sections of this something that exists. So if you like, you could think of, uh, you know, you could think of, again, going back to the, the incarnation with a capital I, if you like, you could think of Jesus as a lower dimensional cross section of God of a higher dimensional God. And Abbott did think like this. And you see this in his other writings. He was a very prolific guy, actually, and wrote a lot of theology. <laughs> you know, he wrote, a, I make the point in the book that he really spent his life devoted to writing these, um, these really um, erudite, you know, uh, volumes of theology. Unfortunately, they were all cast aside. And the book that he's remembered by today was this really wonderful, imaginative, short novella, Flatland. Um, but again, he is, Abbott really is, I think, working on theological questions in Flatland, even if he, um, even if he's not completely upfront about that. Absolutely. I think Flatland is actually a really engaging way of imagining what could be a very difficult and a very abstract concept. So I just wanted to move on to look a bit at your second chapter where you discuss C. Howard Hinton and his use of mathematics to probe theological questions. And I think that, well, Many people may not have heard of Hinton himself. I'm sure most of them are familiar with his concept of the Tesseract, because it's an idea that would go on to be massively influential in 20th century science fiction, everywhere from literature to comic books to movies. So where does this idea of the Tesseract come from, and how does it go on to influence both science fiction and mystical literatures? Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Um, yeah, no, I'm glad you started with Abbott and Hinton because they're they're at the start of the book, and as you say correctly, both of the their work is so important. Um, you know, Hinton's Tesseract pops up in so many different places that I talk about in the book. Um, uh, going all the way to later in the 20th and early 21st century with people who talk about near-death experiences and films that we know like Interstellar and authors that we know like Madeline Engel. And of course, Abbott's book Flatland gets riffed on and taken up in, in so many places. And <clears throat> that's all a part of the, the narrative that I tell there. But yeah, you're, you're right. <laughs> Hinton is a more obscure figure than, than Abbott um, and a more puzzling figure in many ways. Um, maybe a more eccentric figure. I talk quite a bit in the book about his reformer father and his own sort of reforming impulses and his own sort of unique way of thinking about liberal reforms and thinking about gender and thinking about marriage. And Hinton was, as you know, convicted of bigamy. So he takes one wife and then takes another. And so he has a whole, he has a whole, um, he has a whole plan that goes beyond just helping people imagine higher dimensions. But he, he does, as I say in the book, he does get really excited about higher dimensions. Um, and uh, and mathematics and philosophy. He's trained in math, actually, as a way of sort of reimagining the world and his place in it. Um, and he he does, as you say, he does coin the word tesseract, right? For what we could what we could also call a fourth dimensional cube, or it, 
It's also called a hypercube today. All right. So if you Google Tesseract or Hypercube, you'll come up with all kinds of well, links. You'll come up with all kinds of Wikipedia pages <laughs> and you'll come up with um, you'll come up with computer models, actually rotating computer models of what's uh, what a Tesseract might look like. Um, right. If we were to be able to perceive one. Um, so Hinton does coin the term Tesseract. You write it. Then Tesseract shows up in all kinds of 20th and 21st century science fiction. Um, Hinton wasn't the first person to think about fourth dimensional objects, though. I should, I should underscore that point. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, mathematicians and physicists were, were talking about, um, a fourth dimension and talking about the, the, about higher dimensional objects, right? Could, could we have a fourth dimensional cube? Could we have a fourth dimensional triangle or a fifth dimensional and so on? And actually, if you, if you do Google Tesseract or Hypercube, you can go onto various pages and you can look at um, you know, the ways that geometers today and mathematicians today think about what would a fourth dimensional cube look like or a fifth dimensional cube. We know what the properties of these uh, objects might be, right? Um, so, uh, so for instance, we know what the properties, uh, just to scale it back for a second, we know what the properties of a flat two-dimensional square are, okay? We, we know that a square, uh, like on a piece of paper, um, has, for instance, it's, it's bounded by four lines, okay? So, and then moving up a dimension to a three-dimensional um, object, we know a cube is bounded by six flat planes, all right? By analogy, we know that a hypercube or a tesseract, and this is where it gets hard to imagine, but a hypercube or a tesseract is bounded by eight cubes. Now, <laughs> like I said, that's where it gets a little hard to imagine. So this is an object that is bounded by eight cubes, eight three-dimensional cubes. Kind of hard to imagine what that might be. But we know what the properties, like I said, we know what the properties of these higher dimensional objects would be. And mathematicians and geometers um, like Tom Banshoff at Brown, for instance, who's really well known for thinking about higher dimensional geometries uh, today. He just retired, actually. I think he retired in 2014. But he's still around. He's a real lover of Edwin Abbott and Flatland and has done a lot of research himself on Flatland. We know what these higher dimensional objects would be. So Hinton wasn't the first to think about um, what we would call hypercube or a fourth dimensional cube or a tesseract. But he did, as you say, popularize it. And he does traffic in all kinds of cubes, right? <laughs> we know, or you know from reading my chapter on Hinton, that he's really interested in modeling, right? He ends up kind of going around door to door to friends and family and to anyone who would listen about his system of stacking and memorizing cubes and different cube formations. And he ends up with, uh, with a Rubik's cube that is three cubes by three cubes on the bottom by three more cubes. So it's a, it's a Rubik's cube that's three by three by three, which is actually just like a Rubik's cube, which is 27 cubes. And he stacks these cubes up. He memorizes how they're configured. Then he rotates the whole, um, the whole cube structure. And then he memorizes where everything is again, right? And uh, as you know from reading the book, this is quite a, what we say, quite an imaginative thought experiment. I mean, qu quite a feat, really, of memory to, to do the kinds of things he was doing, which is memorizing the locations of those 27 cubes. In some cases, the colors, he would use different colors, the colors of those 27 cubes in the Rubik's Cube. In other cases, he would come up with unique names, right, 
for all of the edges, all the points, all the faces of all the 27 cubes, right? When you add up all those variables, it's really a remarkable uh, accomplishment to memorize those things. What was he doing? Uh, you know, what in the world was he doing with this? <laughs> you know, and many people thought he was he was nuts. I mean, many people thought what he was doing was, was kind of nuts. In fact, you had scientists quite explicitly saying, don't do this because it will lead to insanity. It will lead to a kind of mental imbalance. Um, Hinton denied that was the case. But as I mentioned in the book, there were there were cases, you know, of this. There were there were cases in the in the in newspapers in the UK right, of uh, students and other people going mad from trying to imagine a fourth spatial dimension or imagine a tesseract. So Hinton has this whole system, right, that he he popularizes and, and promotes in various ways. I mentioned um, a relationship he has with the American philosopher and psychologist William James. They have a wonderful relationship and correspondence that I talk about in the book. Both of them were sympathetic, right, in a way to this idea that there could be something more to reality. Um, you know, Hinton thought the, the more was spatial. Um, and I think James thought the more was within consciousness. And that's, but, but I think they both wanted to work on that, that issue, that problem. In fact, in fact, James tried to help him out. Um, James offered him a loan. He loaned him money. He, um, he offered the Lowell lecture. The Lowell lectures. Um, Harvard has a lecture series called the Lower, Low, Lowell Lectures. He offered it to Hinton, and Hinton eventually ended up declining it, um, which is unfortunate because he had some interesting things to say, um, and he would have had a bigger platform to say them. He declined them because he, because I think he felt he felt insecure. He felt a bit insecure coming to Harvard. He talked about feeling insecure and not sure what I'm going to say or, or how I would convince people. He, he felt, he always kind of felt bad about not convincing enough mathematicians and scientists about the reality of fourth dimensional space. This is one thing that actually sets Hinton apart um, and makes him, I guess, kind of a misfit as he did believe, unlike the many other mathematicians and geometers of his time and even physicists who thought it was interesting to think about and even model higher spaces, Hinton actually believed in the existence of real higher dimensional spaces. So, so that makes him a bit different, right? Um, and as I said earlier, he also kind of embraces the, the imaginative power of, of that space. And, he, and unlike most people, he says he glimpses it which is kind of a big claim. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that seeing a tesseract, um, you know, is, is not something that most people would say that they could see. You know, an object, a fourth dimensional cube uh, bounded by eight cubes. Um, it's not something that we can really perceive. Hinton believed that with his, you know, pedagogy of re-educating the senses, one could actually achieve a transcendent form of vision. One could actually achieve a higher dimensional form of sight. That was a big claim. Um, that was a big claim. And, um, you know, you asked earlier about who takes up these ideas and who borrows these ideas, which is, after all, a big part of my, my new book. Um, well, people, you know, many people get interested in Hinton. Uh, some of them are secular and some of them are just interested in a thought experiment and then the imagination. But 
many of the other folks are religious people or spiritual people. And I talk in there about spiritualists. I talk about theosophists. I talk about Christians and Jews um, in the book. So many other people were interested in this idea because they thought, well, you know, maybe this is a way of cultivating a form of transcendent vision. You know, is it possible that if I use Hinton's methods, um, I could somehow develop a form of transcendent sight? You know, I could see, I could see into a beyond, right? I could see a non-empirical reality somehow. Um, actually, um, you know, Hinton's like canny publisher, <laughs> when he published a book, when he published one of his books, appended the subtitle, you know, Ghosts Explained. Yeah, you know, that, that's the subtitle to one of Hinton's books. So, so they're capitalizing, right, in the 1890s, 1900, 1910, they're capitalizing on this sort of widespread culture of ghost seeking and culture of ghosts in novels and in pop culture, right? Here's a way that you could actually cultivate a type of ghostly seeing, right? A higher dimensional seeing. Um, maybe, maybe if you use Hinton's methods, you could do this. So, you know, my, a lot of the later chapters of my book are all about religious people who borrow this idea because of its liberatory or spiritual or imaginative possibilities, right? And C.S. Lewis is in there and Madeleine Lengel's in there and many lesser known um, religious figures, many theosophists are in there, Um you know, and, and other folks in pop culture who are making television shows like The Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, or who are making films, um, um, and so on. So many people are borrowing, and many people are are interested in these kinds of things. So what was the reaction amongst, say, more mainstream scientists and mathematicians to this use of mathematics and geometry as a means of justifying beliefs in higher dimensions? I, I believe there was some backlash and some criticism of thinkers like Hinton. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think there was a lot of... Um, a lot of protecting of the boundaries of what legitimate mathematics and science is, especially science and physics, right? So, um, and you have some of those boundary disputes that go on today as well, right? In modern physics, you have mathematical physicists, including string theorists, right? Who talk about, frankly, unempirical things, right? Um, they use mathematical formulas to model the universe, and their formulas in many cases, string theory is one case, cannot be tested at this point. The, uh, you know, so they are, uh, they are called by some other physicists too speculative, right? Or not science, okay? That kind of work, that's not science. Why is it not science? It's not science because it's not testable, right? Um, you can't test these kinds of things. Um, and it was the same way as you, as you say during Hinton's time, right? Um, there were arguments among mathematicians and among scientists about, you know, do these types of speculations about higher dimensions have a place? Do they have a place within science or are they something else? Right. And, and Hinton who, who embraces higher dimensional speculation as a kind of, um, as a form of, as a new way of imagining reality. Um, and as I said, as a kind of a spiritual practice, he's definitely rejected by mainstream mathematicians, right? And that that's um, towards the end of the Hinton chapter that I have in there. And it's, it's in other chapters as well. So there's a, there's a back and forth, right? There's a set of arguments in the book about what counts as legitimate science or what, on the other hand, is, quote, speculative, right, or um, unempirical. 
or cannot be tested. So part of the book too tries to deal with how do we how do people define and argue about the the borders of science and what what counts. Um, and like I said, those conversations are we still have those today, right? Um, you have mathematical physicists on the one hand and other kinds of physicists on the other hand, and some people saying, you know, look, string theory is not a testable thing. Of course, the string theory say, wait a minute, you know, um, science does include things like mathematics, right? And mathematics can point us eventually to things that can be testable and things that can be true, right? Um, you know, and we can see this, we could see this in the history of physics. We could see this with Einstein, for instance, right? With Einstein's general theory of relativity. So this, this is a, this is a mathematical structure, not a set of non-empirical, you know, um, models that Einstein creates, right? Where he, tries to reimagine and understand um, in a more satisfactory way what gravity is. It was a, it was a wholly unempirical, you know, practice really. Um, you know, it was a set of thought experiments and a set of mathematical equations. It was later in 1919 proven to be correct. All right. But string theorists today, like um, mathematical physicists in the past could say, wait a minute, you know, you can't rule out this kind of work just because it's not testable right now. Right, because mathematics, um, even though it is um, unempirical in the ways that other people talk about empiricism, um, shouldn't be ruled out because maybe mathematics can lead us to true statements um, and even provable statements about the world. So there was a lot of pushback. You're right. There were um, some of that I captured in the book. A lot of scientists um, say this is not something we should be talking about as science. This is metaphysics. If someone if someone dared to sort of you know bring these kinds of speculations into professional journals, um, they would usually be shouted down or excluded um, in various ways. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, I would say mainstream science and was was sort of allergic to these types of ways of, of thinking for sure. So I just want to jump ahead a little bit now to talk about Claude Bradden, who is a really interesting figure. And you talk quite a bit about his writings and you suggest that his writings on the relationship between mathematics and spirituality may have been read by a lot of modernist artists, people like Marcel Duchamp, Max Weber, Salvador Dali, and so on. And do you think the sort of mathematical or scientific conceptualization of the supernatural had an influence on the development of 20th century art? Oh, yeah, sure. There's no question. Um, and in fact, um, my friend Linda Henderson at UT Austin wrote a big book um, that's come out in a new edition on um, higher dimensions are actually the book is called the fourth dimension and non-euclidean geometry in modern art. I think that's the title, Linda Henderson. So she's pretty, uh, pretty extensively, you know, traced the, the, this kind of history that you're pointing to between higher dimensional mathematics, non-euclidean geometry, and it's it, the way it plays out in, in modern art in 20th century and all the way through to the 21st century. Like I said, she has a new edition of that book that came out recently. I think it was in 2013 with MIT press. Um, where she where she updates it. So, yeah, there's no question that these ideas, these that these mathematical ideas and these I ideas from physics influence a number of people. I talk about them in the book, you know, from the American cubist Max Weber, Pablo Picasso, Salvador Dali. I mean, many people um, could be in there. You know, I think that modern artists in the you know beginning in the early 20th century were interested in science. 
You know, they were interested in all kinds of sciences, um, not just the idea, the scientific idea that there were higher spatial dimensions. Um, so they were interested in, in new ideas. And I point to the Cubists in particular in my book as a group of artists who are interested in the mathematics of higher dimensions. There, there are conversations within the Cubist community, within the art community, <coughs> excuse me, about what it means to appropriate this scientific idea or, um, you know, uh, what it means to appropriate responsibly these kinds of ideas. So there were arguments among artists about, you know, well, hey, wait a minute, you're misappropriating these mathematical ideas and using them in your art. And then there was pushback. Um, so there were conversations even within the art world about what does it mean to be a non-scientist and use scientific ideas. Some of that's um, in the story that I tell as well. You know, there's, there's two cubists that I could contrast, Pablo Picasso and Max Weber. Max Weber is the subject of chapter five in my, in my book. Um, and they're different because, you know, Picasso's interested in scientific ideas. He's interested in ideas about higher dimensions, but he's not interested in using them, what would we say, in, spiritual, in a spiritual way. Whereas Max Weber, who I write about more extensively in the book, is, you know, he, he sort of is interested in, in this idea as a way of, what would we say, opening up a window into another reality or, you know, opening up, um, opening up art as a way of seeing beyond our world of, um, of familiar dimensions or beyond our familiar world of three spatial dimensions into something else. Right. And that something else to, to Weber was always a spiritual something else. I mean, he, throughout his life, he always believed that great art, you know, quote unquote, great art always had to be spiritual art or religious art. And he thought he was creating a new form of religious art, right? Very different from older forms of religious art, very abstract. Um, but he would use these ideas. He would use, um, ideas from Hinton. He would use ideas from other um, hyperspace philosophers or other, other people writing about higher dimensions. And some of, these other, some of these artists would use ideas from Bragdon as well. Again, not all Cubists were interested in seeing the absolute or seeing the spirit behind matter, but many of them were, um, especially those influenced, influenced by theosophy, as many, of them, as many of them were as well, like Kandinsky um, and others, right? Um, these are modern artists who believe that modern art is actually the new form of spiritual seeing, right? Uh, and modern artists are our new prophets. And, and Max Weber embraced that identity as well, right? He embraced that. He embraced the idea of higher dimensions. He was one of the first um, artists to write about, this point I make in, in the chapter, but one of the first artists to write about this idea that there could be a fourth spatial dimension, um, or other higher spatial dimensions, right? And, and think about how we might use that to rework um, what, what art is. And then I, I talk about a number of his paintings in the book and the ways I think he mobilizes that concept in order to get people imagining or thinking about um, higher realities above our everyday realities. And, and Claude Bragdon's trying to do that too, right? Um, I write about Claude Bragdon in the book. He's another artist, architect, um, right, who's interested in, he has a slightly different project. I mean, he's interested in creating a more public landscape, an urban landscape of higher dimensions, uh, right, rather than painting, which is what Max Weber was doing. 
you know, is there a way in which we could redesign urban spaces? Is there a way in which we could redesign Central Park in New York, right? Which is one thing he did in order to help people achieve a kind of Hintonian transcendent form of vision, you know, and see beyond our familiar world into something else, a higher form of unity, right? He used this word brotherhood, you know, a form of brotherhood in which um, if we had this transcendent vision, we could see all people being a part of one thing somehow. Um, so Bragdon had this kind of had this kind of vision um, as well. So Bragdon's doing it in a more public way in urban landscapes, and Max Max Weber's doing it through modern art. And Max Weber's a bit different um, as well, right? Max Max Weber's interested, especially in the second half of his career. Uh, he's interested in reincorporating Jewish motifs and Jewish themes and Jewish subjects into his painting. Um, and so then he starts, starts incorporating higher dimensional motifs and Jewish motifs and so on in order to get at the absolute or in order to somehow depict or render the, uh, the spirit. So another really interesting figure that you touch on in the book is John W. Dunn. And Dunn speculated that it might be possible for violent or traumatic events to fragment time itself or to stimulate an individual's capacity to perceive time differently. And this is a really, really interesting idea. How does this tie into the notion of higher dimensions, this fragmentation of time? Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, Dunn, Dunn's story is is a fascinating story, right? It, um, I I love that chapter, and um, I loved working on um, on him. He's he's a pretty pretty interesting guy. And then, you know, a number of people take up his ideas as well and um, develop them into a whole way of thinking about higher dimensions and a whole new way of thinking about what dreams are and so on. So, so yeah, that chapter is about dreams, and you know, it begins with Dunn's story. Um, you know, and his story is, is simply that he, you know, he's in combat in the Second Boer War. And in 1902, he's in a combat setting. He's sleeping at night and he begins to have a series of really vivid dreams um, and really vivid nightmares. And some of them seem to predict the future. So he he has these dreams and um the the way it usually worked for Dunn was he would have a he would have a dream and then the next day or the day after or the day after that he would open a newspaper and he would see the dream uh, played out in a headline so for instance he had a dream that a train crashed in Scotland and killed a bunch of people derailed and crashed um, and then a few days later he opened the newspaper and there it was um, this train crashes in Scotland so and this is kind of how his his dreams would would work. You know, often dreams of traumatic things, and then he would open a newspaper and um, and see it happen. And sometimes the details were correct, and sometimes some of the details were off a little bit. the The story I tell in the chapter that I focus on in the chapter is that he has this dream. Um, you know, and again, this is this is either during or after his sort of combat experiences. He has this dream where he's on an island and there's a lot of rumbling and there's fissures developing in the ground that are venting steam and gas. And um, he knows in his dream that something is really wrong. Um, he's on an island. He's surrounded by French speaking people. He's, he's begging people around him to get off the island and he's, he's, he's running to find police or other authorities and tell them what's going to happen. And, um, and then his dream ends. And then he, a few days later, he opens up the newspaper and, um, 
in Martinique, there was a, in 1902, there was a volcanic um, explosion that completely wipes out a whole town and kills 40,000 people. Um, so it's a really dramatic event. And so he, then he sees it in the newspaper. So he has these experiences. He doesn't really know what's happening. And this is the beginning, according to him, of him thinking about uh, time in new ways. And uh, he was also sort of, he describes himself as an amateur mathematician. So he's up on, you know, he's up on mathematics. He's up on developments in science. His job actually is as an aeronautical engineer. He designs early airplanes for the UK. If you Google him, you can see all of his airplane designs. It's pretty cool, actually. Um, J.W. Dunn, D-U-N-N-E, Dunn. You can check out all of his uh, his biplanes and, and so on um, online. So he has a job as an engineer, but meanwhile, he's sort of puzzling through why this is happening to him. And, and as you say, or as you mentioned, he he has this idea that maybe consciousness somehow becomes fragmented as a result of traumatic experiences. Um, that's, that's one possibility he entertains. He, he thinks for a while, maybe, maybe I've, I've lost it. You know, maybe I'm going crazy somehow, uh, because of these experiences, you know, and he, he starts to think about and use higher dimensions and also Einstein's ideas, because, um, this is after, uh, he starts thinking about this and publishes his big book on this in 1927. And it was in 1919 that, uh, some of Einstein's theories, his theory of gravity gets proven correct, uh, during a, observations made during a total solar eclipse in 1919. Einstein becomes very famous worldwide in 1919 as a result of that observation. And he there's, becomes a big pop culture of Einstein um, after that time. So he, he's reading popularizations of Einstein and Einstein's sort of strange ideas, right, about there being different um, and relative frames of reference in the world. So, uh, you know, Einstein's ideas were kind of crazy because before Einstein, everyone thought, well, space is sort of one sort of uniform spread out thing in the universe, right? Um, it's just kind of one uniform thing. And time is also sort of one spread out kind of uniform thing in the universe. And that's what time is. Well, you know, Einstein comes along and says, no, actually, the only absolute is the speed of light, which never changes. But space and time actually, strangely, are, are connected in, in a fabric that he called space time. And it bends and it stretches. It's really weird, right? Um, and you can have time, uh, time can change. Time can slow down and speed up depending on your relative frame of reference, depending on how close you might be to a massive object or how fast you might be going relative to something else. So there are all of these different frames of references. So Dunn kind of picks this up and he says, you know, that maybe there are different ways of thinking about time and maybe there are different reference points for time. And the other thing that Dunn picks up about this um, is that, you know, in the equations of physics, space-time um, exists as one sort of cosmic bulk. All right? So this is, this is also weird um, and, and hard to imagine, but everything in the universe exists in one big loaf or one big bulk. Everything in, in your future, Miranda, everything in your past, <laughs> everything in my future, my past, it all exists in this big block universe. All right. So to us, it feels like we're moving forward through time um, and experiencing new things, but there's nothing in the equations of physics that says that that's right. 
right? In fact, uh, the equations of physics picture or, or, or model for us this, this block universe. And so Dunn Dun ran with that a little bit. He said, well, you know, wait a minute. If, if it's true that everything exists in this time-space block universe, um, that means that my future is there somewhere. <clears throat> and um, then the question for Dunn becomes, how might I travel to it, right? And maybe in my in the dreaming consciousness, maybe uh, maybe the dreaming consciousness done done argues maybe the dreaming consciousness has an extra degree of freedom, and this is where um, you know the dimensions idea comes in a little bit. Maybe maybe the dreaming consciousness has an extra uh, degree of freedom that it can travel in another dimension and rise up somehow above the bulk or above my timeline and peek into a future timeline. So, um, you know, we could even think about this if we want to go back to Flatland for a second, right? We could think about the ways that the square was peeled off the surface of his two-dimensional flat world and into a higher world. And then what, what was he able to do? Well, he was able to look down at his flat world and suddenly see the whole thing. In the same way, Dunn thought maybe the dreaming consciousness or the dreaming self can be peeled off of our, um, uh, of our familiar world momentarily in the, in, this, in the dreaming state, and it can peek into the whole thing, or it could somehow glimpse into the whole thing or see something that exists in our future. So that's how Dunn sort of used this idea. Um, Dunn has a number of other fascinating dimensions to, to his own life, right, um, that I get to towards the end of that chapter, um, because he sort of plays the role of this very hard-headed, you know, engineer, this rationalist scientist, which for various reasons that I've already discussed, you sort of have to do, right? You sort of have to do that to pass muster in the scientific community. And he does that. Meanwhile, he's journaling and talking to other people about the kind of mystical experiences he's had all of his life. Right. And so, um, you know, at the end of his life, he publishes a book or, and, uh, or his wife publishes a book actually after he dies. That's all about his more mystical intuitions. Right. And the ways that they also were a part of his theories um, and a part of his theories about dreaming and his theories about dimensions and time. So he's also sort of, um, you know, he's not really just this kind of um, what we say secular scientist trying to find um, a way to explain his dreams. He also is a kind of a person who's having, uh, he's having mystical dreams and intuitions. He's, he's actually hearing voices right? He's hearing God speaking to him at stressful times in his life and, and these kinds of things. So he actually has a pretty uh, fascinating biography when you, when you see the whole thing laid out. So moving into the realm of literature or starting to maybe focus a bit more specifically on literature, how do these ideas about mathematics, other dimensions, and geometry impact the work of seemingly fantastic writers like... Um, like George MacDonald, C.S. Lewis, and Lewis Carroll. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly, exactly. I mean, they, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I think we tend to associate them perhaps with, with fairy tales, with the fantastic. Yeah. But yeah. as you posit in your book, these ideas about mathematics and, ge and geometry are really very influential on their work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, again, I think it's... Um, I think that we live in a world in which 
the most authoritative discourse that we have is a scientific discourse. I mean, I think that I'm not sure if that's controversial to say that or not, but I, I think that that's kind of the world we live in. I mean, I think when people want to know something, they turn to science. Um, and I think science is wonderful and important um, in all those ways. And I think that I think that the thinkers you just mentioned, George MacDonald and C.S. Lewis, and um, even others like Madeline Engel that I talk about in the book, I think that they also thought that. You know, I mean, I think that these are people with metaphysical questions and spiritual questions and religious questions who lived like we do in an age of science. And I think that what they're doing is they're, they're borrowing from science, you know, in order to help them answer some of these uh, deep questions that they have. And I think C.S. Lewis certainly, you know, just to maybe turn to one of the, one of the authors that you raised. I mean, I think C.S. Lewis thought like that too, in the sense that um, he is developing fantastic other worlds, but he, he but he wants them to be plausible other worlds, you know, and um, and he wants them to be, uh, you know, and, and how do you create plausible other worlds? Well, one one may one way might be to to create them with a sense of you know literary realism and to um, um, and so on, but another way is to kind of borrow from science, you know, and borrow scientific concepts and. He does this um, as he develops his otherworldly portals and openings in the Narnia series, which I talk about in the book. He does this, you know, he, he even more explicitly refers to higher dimensions and the mathematics of higher dimensions in his, some of his theological writing. It's hard to see it if you don't know what you're looking for um, in on miracles um, or mere Christianity or, or other places or other sermons that he that he gives. But you can see it if you if you've read Abbott um, and if you've read Hinton, you can see it where it comes through, and it, it comes through quite explicitly in this wonderful and um, subtle sermon he gives called Transposition. Wait, do I have that right? I think that's right. <laughs> uh, I think that's right. Um, transposition i think that's right so and here he he refers to higher dimensions quite explicitly um, as a way of thinking about or imagining higher dimensional spiritual realities right and how they might get into a lower dimensional material world um, and so that that's one place where he talks quite explicitly about the hinton abbott sort of tradition um, and he even talks about flatlanders and so on in, in that sermon. But he does this elsewhere, um, too. He, he talks about the Trinity. I mentioned earlier the incarnation, right, um, and a higher dimensional way of understanding how um, a higher dimensional God might incarnate itself in a lower dimensional form like Jesus. Um, Abbott, I'm sorry, Lewis, C.S. Lewis talks like that. He also talks like that when he explains what the Trinity is, you know, how could something that is three, uh, I'm sorry, how could something that is one at a higher level be something that is three on a lower level? And he uses um, higher dimensions and these concepts to explain how that might be. So, um, yeah, I think that, I think that Lewis is using mathematical and scientific ideas in order to lend plausibility um, uh, to his arguments about what these Christian theological concepts mean. I think that um, Abbott was doing that as well, that he was using mathematical ideas to point to uh, or to suggest the reality of uh, spiritual things, right? And I think that Lewis is interested in that too. Like, can we use concepts, can we use these concepts to suggest, to at least just suggest or open people's minds 
to the possibility that something might be higher. Hey, you know, if there, if we know that, uh, or if it's plausible that there is a higher dimensional space that we can't perceive, or other kinds of things that we can't perceive, um, you know, maybe that makes it more plausible to think that there's a spiritual reality that we can't perceive. Um, so there's a way there's a way of appropriating scientific ideas in order to build plausibility into new or reworked religious types of ideas. Um, and earlier we were talking about Max Weber. I think Max Weber does that as he refigures Judaism in his painting, you know, it, using higher dimensional ideas to refigure tradition, right, and make it more plausible or meaningful for modern people. And Lewis was doing that, and Lengel was doing that, um, and so on. And and I use this word enchantment in the book as well um, for some of these same ideas. Like, is there a way in which um, fantastic scientific concepts, like their like higher dimensions, or even like you know, um, or like the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, or like the the, mul- the many multiverse theories, right? Um, or dark matter, or dark energy, or so on. Is there a way in which these fantastic ideas are re-enchanting people's imaginations in um, in modernity? So sometimes I point to Madeleine Engel as, a, as an example of this, and you asked about Engel as well as, as a literary example of the appropriation of these kind of tropes. Um, Engel fits, fits the model perfectly, right, um, which is why I write about her. One reason I write about her, she, she was raised Episcopalian in New York, but she sort of falls away and becomes an atheist. But then she has a whole narrative, you know, an autobiographical narrative where she talks about, well, the reason I came back to sort of mystery and wonder and spirit and God was by reading popular science about, she says, higher math. Um, she means, you know, pop science books about higher dimensions and also sort of pop science books about Einstein's theories um, and his mathematics. So she read all of that and um, – you know, she calls Einstein Saint Einstein. And so she talks about all of these scientific thinkers as the new theologians. So this is really quite explicitly a case of sort of a modern person who finds herself unable to really believe in all these old stories in the Bible, but who gets re-enchanted or develops a new re-enchanted imagination by reading popular science and sort of encountering fantastic science, right? Or fantastic scientific notions. And then, of course, she... She figures all of this out by writing a wrinkle, a wrinkle in time, all right, which has this wonderful cultural life to it, um, even today, and incorporates the tesseract, right? It takes us back to our earlier, our earlier conversation about Hinton's tesseract. She she refigures what the tesseract is in a wrinkle in time, actually, um, but she still has this idea in there that um, that uh, you know that the tesseract gives you access to higher dimensional space. You know, um, in her in her fantasy and sci-fi, it gives you access to traveling across vast spaces uh, because it folds space. And she has she has her own sort of idea or her own ways of appropriating uh, tesseracts and higher dimensions and indeed math and science, right? Which which many would push back and say, well, she sort of has misappropriated or not quite understood what the science is, but whatever. You know, I mean <laughs> uh, you know for me, I mean, in my book, I'm interested. I'm interested in not really deciding whether or not people's appropriations of scientific concepts are misappropriations. I'm interested in the cultural power and the imaginative power of these ideas, right? In in culture and in pop culture, 
Um, and they do have a real power, right, uh, to re-enchant and to change. Um, and Angles, like I said, is a perfect example of that. And then in Wrinkle in Time, right, then in turn, this becomes such a powerful part of our culture today um, for reimagining spirit, for reimagining um, God, right? And if you if you know the book Wrinkle in Time, it is, it really is, and it was it was quite radical for you know the early 1960s, but it really does reimagine um, God. It really does reimagine spirit, incorporate science in these ways, and it reimagines gender, of course, um, in ways as well. And I talk about that quite about a quite a bit in the book about how she's trying to, in many ways, kind of undo the fantastic but patriarchal sort of other worlds of someone like C.S. Lewis. And she's kind of trying to undo that and create a, a new sort of fantastic other world that is, um, that's an, that's an other world that allows women to have a full, a full humanity, um, which she believed others didn't, uh, didn't, uh, didn't do. I think L'Engle actually really brings us up to the middle decades of the 20th century. So thinking a little bit about that time period, um, in what way did the rise of television and broadcast media transform how people thought about things like higher dimensions? Yeah, th that's a great question. That's something I'm thinking more about now um, with new projects and my new thinking about you know my next book project and how is it that electronic technologies – um, make possible new sensorial and imaginative possibilities for people? Um, how is it that electronic technologies can produce otherworldly presences, right? Like electronic technologies, radio, television, um, computers, iPhones, the internet, um, right? So I, I'm, I'm actually really interested in that. And I, I think it, these electronic technologies do actually change how we think i think they do change how we imagine uh how we imagine what religion is and i think they do change how we think about what the supernatural is um which is a category we haven't talked too much today about but is a category that's important in my book you know how how do these electronic technologies make it more possible to imagine uh the supernatural um so I, I think those are open questions. In my book, as you say, in the in chapter nine, towards the end, I do start to talk about that. I, I talk about television. I talk about early science fiction television that incorporates higher dimensions, like shows like The Outer Limits and Twilight Zone, film, and then in films like Interstellar. So I have a whole chapter there where I I talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, like the <clears throat> electronic ways of tuning in other dimensions, all right, <laughs> or electronic ways of tuning in other worlds. And how is that depicted in science fiction? And then how is it practiced in new forms of electronic or electromagnetic spirituality? So in the book, I talk about how televisions are figured um, in the Twilight Zone, let's say, as these objects of mystical awe and sort of reverence, you know, which, which, is, which is true. When they enter living rooms in the 1950s, really quite dramatically, you know, 1950, very few people had a television. In 1960, 90% of American households have a television. So it really does, you know, quite dramatically enter upon the scene. And it, it, it changes how people think about things. Um, so I look at the cultural impact of the TV. I look at these sci-fi shows like The Twilight Zone 
that actually depict televisions as openings to otherworldly realities. All right, so I look at that in Twilight Zone and Outer Limits. And then in the second half of the chapter, I look at televangelists like Oral Roberts, um, who, you know, who famously sort of puts his hand up towards the camera that's filming him as he's preaching, right? And he asks viewers around the world to, to lay their hands on their television screen. So this raises all kinds of questions about the electronic mediation of the Holy Spirit, you know, or, or we could say earlier, I used the earlier language of like the technological production of an otherworldly presence, all right? Is this technology producing a kind of, uh, or, or transmitting, I'm not sure which word to use there, but maybe both producing or transmitting this otherworldly presence. We could put it differently and say, is this electronic technology making it more possible for people to experience the thoughts or emotions of belief? That's a slightly different way of putting it, I think. Um, but either way, I think all those things are going on when a religious believer is laying her hands um, on a television screen, right? Um, and feeling healed or putting their hands in an earlier era on a um, sort of a humming, buzzing, warm radio. Um, or, or, um, another thing I talk about later in the chapter is, you know, scrying, which is sort of meditating on a screen. So, um, you know, there, there are different groups of folks who will meditate on a staticky television screen in order to glimpse, catch glimpses of the spirits of departed loved ones. So they believe that somehow through meditating on radio static or on television static, that these things are electromagnetic openings to otherworldly spaces or spiritual spaces or heaven. So I talk about them in, in that chapter as well, which is, again, about the televisual mediation of otherworldly spirits. Um, um, yeah, so there's, and, and now people, people do this kind of scrying with their iPhones, with their computer screens and so on. You can Google it and check it out online. There's all kinds of meditative protocols um, to do this. Again, sort of thinking through um, the, the electromagnetic transmission of other worlds through these kinds of devices. So I think that having moved from 19th century tracts on geometry and mathematics and the fourth dimension right up to television and later on iPhones and contemporary technology. Yeah. I think we've really spanned a massive, massive <laughs> length of time. So Yes, and, I, and I've gone on too long too. It's, we're, oh, we're over time. You know, not well. even remotely. It was absolutely fascinating. And I think in spanning such a great length of time, I think we've really traced the history of a thoroughly fascinating idea. So it's been really wonderful talking to you about your book and really, really edifying. I just, I feel at this point, we've probably taken up enough of your time, but I would like to, I would like to ask before I let you go, are you working on anything at the moment? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm working on a couple different things. I mean, I'm, I'm editing a, a book, um, that looks at the sort of religious and spiritual landscape of contemporary of Amer contemporary America. So that brings together journalists and sociologists and historians and thinking about a movement that's really important actually in, in, in Europe and America, which is people who talk about themselves as spiritual, but not religious. Um, you know, and this, uh, 
you know, there's, there's many sort of quote spiritual or spiritual, but not religious people in my book, other worlds as well. Right. I mean, so that these are overlapping projects. So I'm finishing up that edited book and then I'm, I'm wanting to write a new book and I've, I've already made some headway on it because I actually had a number of chapters in other worlds that I threw out. Um, that I didn't get a chance to include. And in fact, I had stuff in there on, I had more stuff on televisions. I had more stuff in there on electronic devices. I had stuff in there on early cinema and surrealism. So I'm actually interested in following through with that and doing more um, on some of the subjects I was just talking about, which is, you know, how do we think about um, the ways in which new electronic technologies make possible new imaginative possibilities for people. You know, do, do these electronic technologies make it possible to be spiritual um, in, in new ways? Do they make it seem more plausible? Or do they, do they make um, belief in such things as like an afterlife or ghosts seem more plausible? And there's a lot of ways that you can talk about that, right? You can talk about all of the, you know, the incredible sort of, supernatural programming <laughs> that you have on television or film, right? There's, there's so many shows about, um, you know, channeling, um, you know, channeling ghosts or tapping into ghosts or ghost hunting or, you know, whether it's documentaries or reality shows or films and so on. There's, there's a lot of shows with supernatural content. Um, so I'm interested in that stuff. And then I'm also interested in the kinds of stuff that I just mentioned, which is, you know, how, how do things like, you know, radio, cinema, television, um, you know, iPhones, how do they organize new sensorial and imaginative possibilities for people um, as they think about what it means to, to believe in a ghost or believe um, in a spirit, you know, and, and how do they, how do they challenge maybe traditional religion to um, not, not really to, to fold up its tent, but to kind of rethink what religion is um, and how religion gets technologically mediated. I mean, you certainly see a lot of that. You cer- certainly see a lot of, um, you know, there, there's, there's thousands of religious apps, right? <laughs> or spiritual apps or meditation apps or, or so on. I'm interested in all of that, right? The, the ways that that's going to the electronic mediation of even traditional religion is going to change things, whether it's Judaism or Christianity or Islam. So I've put in some, like I said, I have some work done on some of that stuff, but um, there's st- I still have to do a lot to, to pull together a book on it. But that, that, those are the kinds of things I want to be working on. That sounds really wonderful. And I can't wait to read it once you do put it together and once it's published. Um, I suppose just in closing, I wanted to thank you again for appearing on the show. It was a really, really interesting conversation. I feel like I learned an awful lot. I think our listeners learned an awful lot. And I think if they would like to learn more, your book is Other Worlds, Spirituality and the Search for Invisible Dimensions. And it was published earlier this year. And I think it's available through Harvard University Press. Yeah, yeah, or, or so, Amazon. Yeah, I, and it's Amazon as yeah. well. So um, wherever good books yeah. are sold. But I would definitely recommend anyone who is at all interested in this relationship between the religious and the scientific to check it out because it is a really, really comprehensive and engaging survey of the development of these kinds of thoughts about higher dimensions. So um, I'm just going to leave it there. And Miranda, just thank yeah, you. let me thank you too. Thanks so much for your great questions and for your interest in my book. It was, it was a pleasure to be on the, on the podcast. You're most welcome. It was a really, really engaging conversation. 
So for New Books in Literary Studies, I'm Miranda Corcoran, and thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in.